Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome to our latest Ignatius Press uh, Facebook Live author interview. I'm John Harriad. I'm our catalog manager here at Ignatius Press. And today we have uh, Leo Labresco, author of Building the Benedict Option, which is on sale right now from us at ignatius.com for $8.95 during our summer sale. I'll give a brief introduction to Leah here from the back of the book. <laughs> she has worked as a stat statistics professor, a data journalist, a Bayesian probability instructor at an organization teaching defensive driving for your brain. She converted to Catholicism after graduating from Yale University. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, First Things, The Weekly Standard, The American Interest, The American Conservative, America, and other outlets. She has spoken across the United States as well as in Australia, Ireland, and Poland. Her first book is Arriving at Amen, Seven Catholic Prayers That Even I Can Offer. So welcome, Leah. Thanks so much for having me on. So what is the Benedict Option and why did you write this particular book on the subject? Well, the person who had the best description of the Benedict Option is one of the folks who hasn't written a book on it. Uh, and it's Ross Douthit, who said it's basically, it's a ratchet effect. It's starting from wherever you are now, taking one step closer to God and one step deeper into community than you're already doing. So what that looks like varies a lot based on you know, what your life looks like. If you've recently moved to a new city, kind of feel unsure about you know, what connections you have, just inviting someone, you know, to take a walk after mass uh, is itself a big step. If you live in a place with a vibrant community and you're already feel like you're doing a lot, then, you know, taking one step further might be doing something much bigger, like saying to your parish, you know, how do we invite more people in? What are the needs of our community? And in one case, do we want to open a laundromat? Uh, to mm -hmm. give people a place to be with dignity while doing important work, folks who are in a more precarious spot. Uh, so the scope of the Benedict Option can change a lot. But the basic idea is what Ross said, one step deeper into community, one step closer to God. Yeah, the thing that struck me reading your book the first time is it's equally about building community with like-minded people who share your faith so that you can lean on them in times of spiritual need, as well as reaching out into the immediate community to people who may not share your same values, but that you are connecting with on a community level. So um, that is something that has definitely kind of spoken to me, especially during this time where we're, everyone's in lockdown. We've got mm -hmm. people on our block um, who have been reaching out to ask if they can share food with others and uh, if they can make grocery runs and things like that. Um, from your own experience with uh, the current uh, pandemic, how has this idea of uh, building community affected the way you've been living? Well, I think that really is a big part of it, of looking beyond the communities we might have chosen to the people who are most immediately around us, uh, who both kind of need our help most, but who also 
are just the easiest to reach, especially if you're trying to be responsible and relatively distanced. So, you know, when when things started heating up, I went door to door on just my block and put a little invitation letter in every mailbox. And there were more than I thought. This is when I learned how many mailboxes there were on my street. I went back and had to print more letters twice, uh, just inviting everyone to a listserv. And to be honest, where I live in New Jersey has been pretty lightly hit, thanks be to God. So the things people have needed on the listserv have been pretty small. You know, one neighbor asked if someone could go buy them stamps because they were quarantining, but they had letters they wanted to mail and leave out and wanted to be responsible and not go to the post office. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of time where people were going out on their porches for a happy hour and then it got too hot. And then I had to email the listserv because I was clumsy and I tripped and sprained my finger. And so it's, you know, late at night, the stores are closed and I'm just emailing the listserv saying like, does anyone have athletic tape so I can buddy tape my fingers together? <laughs> so it's all been mostly at that, that like borrow a cup of sugar from your neighbor's level, but in a way that I wouldn't have had a resource to do beforehand. Now, for the town as a whole, some folks are going well beyond what I started. You know, there's a mutual aid network that's been raising money. You know, when our daughter grew out of her size one diapers, we took the extra boxes and left them on our porch and people picked them up and brought them to other moms who need them. So yeah, the mutual aid community in our neighborhood has been really wonderful. That's it. Yeah, that sounds somewhat like our own neighborhood where people have been placing boxes of items other people could use out in front and a lot of stuff's been going around. Um, one question I had also, uh, you talk a lot in the, your book about the importance of shared prayer, shared prayer life. And in a time when people are distanced, are there ways that you're making this happen? Yeah. So one thing, you know, we'd been doing pre-pandemic, you know, on and off, but we had a group of friends in New York that we wanted to pray with more often while we lived in New York uh, without seeing them all the time. And we started just doing an Angelus text. So, you know, at noon, one person would text Angelus bell emoji, right? And everyone who was able to pray would, you know, text back, you know, just the praying hands. And it changed the Angelus from something we might be doing alone in our offices, to something we knew we were doing with other people, even if not physically. But it just makes a big difference knowing someone else is doing that along with you. So, you know, now I've been doing other things where how can I share a prayer with someone whether or not we're doing it and can see each other doing it. So, you know, a friend of mine you know, asked me to join her in a novena. And so every day that I'm praying that novena, I know at some point during the day she is also um, sending a picture of a prayer card to a friend when I'm praying with them so they can pray the same prayer card with me. And one of the simplest things is I've been trying just to reach out to friends more, setting up more phone calls to catch up and just ending phone calls with what can I pray for for you? So that becomes part of what's connecting us. Hmm. Also, anybody is watching this on Facebook right now, we, we are taking questions. If you anyone has a specific question they'd li like to ask Leah about her book. Oh, here's one. I live in a small town in a retirement community. So this is something I've been looking to do, reach out to my neighbors. Yeah, I think that's a great thing to be doing. And you don't have to have a plan for how to help is the nice thing. If you just start by making it easy for people to share needs and even start, even if you're aiming to help, start by sharing some small need you have. It makes people feel like they have permission to share their own needs. Because uh, I think that's sometimes the hard thing is, 
folks feel like they either have needs that are too big to ask for help with or, or too small to count. Um, and the more that people ask for things from each other, the, the easier it becomes for everyone to speak up and to know that it's okay. Yeah. The, one of the other questions I had for you is, um, you talked a lot in your book about hospitality, small ways that you can uh, have get-togethers with friends and things like that. And it's something that uh, I've, we found, my wife and I, as, as we started to have more children, it was harder and harder to manage the logistics of doing something like this. I was wondering if there are specific ways that now that you have a child of your own that you've tried to work around this. <laughs> well, we've tried it before we had a baby to, you know, make our home relatively open to friends, kids, do a bit of baby proofing ourselves. And, you know, we're, we're kind of like seeing how much more we have to do now. We have a little prayer corner and our baby crawled into the bottom shelf and was just like laying out the icons so we had to reconfigure it. One thing is just, you know, planning events where it's okay if things get a little disruptive um, and knowing that that's all right. So, you know, one year we had um, folks over for pancakes for Easter and a friend came over with his two sons and the two sons like found a lot of things in our house that we didn't know were drums. And it turns out they were drums and that worked fine because we're just having a convivial time together. We've done some events where, you know, the event is themed around a play reading. And I'm a lot less sure of how that's going to work with a baby at this point, even a pre-verbal baby, you know, who can't object <laughs> to, you know, the text. Um, you know, and we'll see. Some of it might be that sometimes when it's safe to gather that, you know, we kind of take turns of who's in the room with a bunch of kids and then, you know, have two adults in there and everyone else is doing a more grown-up thing and people rotate um, might be one thing I try. Um, but sometimes we've had just very nice gatherings that were pretty raucous and full of children that maybe people wouldn't plan that way. And it turned out all right, just like people's home lives are all right with a bunch of kids there. So when we had our baby shower, I would get all these updates from my pregnancy app of like themes for a baby shower. And like baby showers don't need a theme. The theme is that there's a baby, you know, on the way. We didn't decorate or anything. We just had friends over and those friends had a bunch of children. So the theme was definitely children. And as we unwrapped things, you know, children were all trying to climb into the boxes and they went upstairs and they were all over our house. And people just kind of cycled between, I want to be in a room that has a bunch of kids, you know, drawing somewhat supervised, or I want to be in the room that has less of that going on. And what was nice is there was enough of a community of trust, including among people who didn't know each other, who just knew us, that folks were kind of letting their kids be supervised by other grownups some of the time. So I guess this is all shaking out to my advice is if you're worried about hosting something with a few kids, try hosting something with a lot more kids, but more grownups also at the same time. That reminds me of my wife and I, when we got married, we planned our wedding around the idea that there were going to be a lot of children, there, lots and lots, because it was a big homeschooling group. And it was it was like that. It was, it was a bit chaotic. But I've noticed in the years since that every wedding that I've gone to that has been very memorable and enjoyable has always been one with a lot of children there. The ones that where it's not as many kids, it's just not as fun. And that's a good point, because that reminds me of another thing we've done in the past that we're probably going to do in the future. For our wedding, we just hired like, three or four babysitters who were in a room that kids could hang out in if they thought the, you know, the reception had gotten boring. Um, 
And that kind of gave a few more options to everyone. And the New York City Frasati group has been great about this. When I lived in New York, they'd have um, events once a month for engaged or married couples, and they'd arrange babysitting so folks could drop off their kids for the hour and then have a talk with other grownups. So whether it's kind of pooling money together to pay for babysitting for the event or, you know, different folks taking it in turn or seeing that as part of hostessing, if you can afford it, that's definitely made space for kids to have a nice time and parents to have a little bit of a quieter grown-up time sometimes. Yeah, that's that's definitely something that, uh, that you could, you know, is something to think about and also to uh, to realize that I think in it's very easy to get in your head this idea that people will be offended by a scruffy sort of get-together when in fact it does make people let their guard down more usually and, and be more open and less formal. Um, one of the other uh, questions I had here, and this is something that is just drawing upon you know, not many people have heard of the Benedict Option. Um, and the people who have heard of it, they often get the impression that it is a sort of um, shutting out everything about the world that is that is bad. And, and I'm going to just stake out a space with my like-minded friends and shut everybody else out. And there is a, a near the end of your book, you talk about this idea as someone who views it as running away rather than running towards something. And I was wondering if you speak a little more about this running toward concept. Yeah, you know, the if you if you see the Benedict option or any other part of your spiritual life as fundamentally a retreat from or an avoidance of, uh, it's it's not going to work, and that will be apparent sooner or later. It's not an error you can persist in indefinitely, because if you're trying to avoid the you know the sinfulness of the world, the trouble is that wherever you run, you're bringing you marked by original sin, everyone else in your group too, right? Which is why we have to be running towards Christ. And if we're running away from other things, it's only because we're chasing Christ and they're not keeping up, right? So when we when we desire God, we do find we leave some things behind, but not even because we hate those things, but because we want God. And if they're distracting us or pulling us away, then we can't have both. Now, what that means in an individual person's life will vary a lot. You know, there are some things that are just explicitly near occasions of sin, you know, that you have to leave behind. You know, I put uh, both, you know, pornography and kind of near pornography that unfortunately takes up a lot of culture in that category. And then there are things that are completely neutral. But, you know, if you find that, you know, a... Um, a sports fandom is taking up so much of your life or you resent going to church because it's distracting you from the game, or I think youth sports are really in this category, right? There's nothing wrong with organized sports, but the kind of over-professionalized youth sports that tries to take over a family's whole life and demands everything in your life, including God, comes second to it, may be something you have to give up to an extent to adjust it to a healthier level. But for the most part, you know, you could give up a lot of things. And if you're not asking for God, you'll still find you're holding nothing in the end. That's a good point. The One of the other things that kind of strikes me is that right now, if you're looking at the news, there seems to be a really radical um, lack. Uh, to, I'm not sure exactly how to, to phrase this, but there seems like a really radical lack of solidarity between 
pretty much everybody. And it's hard to find ways of bridging that gap. And because a lot of people seem to have put up barriers to, you know, even dialogue in a way that they feel as if speaking to somebody on the other side of a controversial issue is somehow uh, like tainting themselves in, in a way. Uh, I, I run across this a lot uh, from people of all political stripes, and it seems like something that it, it's, it's getting more exacerbated right now with debates about how best to approach the the complexities of the pandemic and ongoing issues of police brutality and racism and other, you know, important issues like that. And I'm wondering if there are ways in which approaching through the Benedict option, we can reach out to the other or and realize that we can place ourselves in a way that can listen and have a dialogue back and forth without necessarily going into that retreated woundedness of feeling like I can't speak to this other person. Yeah, you know, I think I think noticing that hesitation or that sense of I can't, I don't want to um, is the first step to doing anything else. So, you know, admitting that you feel that way sometimes, like I don't know how to open a conversation on this topic. I feel like I have no patience for people who believe this. Um, bring that to God first, right? Like we start with God, then we start with community next. Um, if your church is open for adoration, you know, go make a holy hour for someone you feel like you can't talk to and ask the Holy Spirit to really open a door for you. Uh, and maybe that door will turn out to be simply through prayer. Maybe nothing will happen face-to-face -face in your life, but start with prayer. And something I do a lot in my prayer life is just say like, Lord, like maybe you want this of me, but I really don't have any idea how to approach it. So if you're you're asking something subtle of me, God, I need you just to be a lot louder or I need you to speak in capital letters, right? So bring your neediness and insufficiently see it to God first. Second, like after praying, see if you can like anything about the people you feel like you're having trouble with, whether it's that you're struggling with anger or just confusion or frustration. Um, you know, we're called to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And if that feels untrue, then the question is, like, even if you pick out one person you've seen in the news or one person in your neighborhood, depending on where that conflict lies, learn a little about them that goes beyond your disagreement. So you have one thing you can like about them and then pray about that or reach out to them about that. If you have a mutual friend, if it's a closer thing, you have someone who's, you know, on your Facebook wall annoying you or your mix on the same Facebook walls and you don't like seeing what they post, can you reach out to a mutual friend and say, hey, like, I feel like I have a big gulf between me and, you know, John so-and-so. Um, would you be up to, again, in a safer time, possibly take both of us to coffee? Medium thing is like, go to a park with both of us as both of our friends and sit a distance away and wear masks as needed. Or, you know, be on a video chat though. The farther you are from in person, the harder this is going to be to pull off, right? Um, you can even, I've sometimes been like, you know, I just don't get along with so-and-so. And sometimes it's just a matter of personal taste, um, not even a values thing that I could defend as righteous. I just don't like them. And I'll ask someone sometimes if I can do it in confidence, tell me a little about what you like about this person because I don't like them and I want to catch some of the liking you have for them. And we don't need to be afraid that if we like people who are doing bad things that will defile us, right? Because our goal is to love everyone as Christ does, which means 
loving them, first of all, and willing their good. So you can love someone and think, I wish you'd stop doing this. Um, but it's different to stop wishing it just for your sake versus to really wish they'd stop doing it for theirs. Yeah, that's, that uh, makes a lot of sense. The One of the other things that um, this is, you know, something that you, you mentioned what you just now is it's often hard to make these sorts of conversations, have these sorts of conversations if you're not in this, the same space as the other person. And that's one of the things that we're having a lot of trouble with right now. And, you know, personally, I feel like that may be one of the reasons uh, we're seeing such a big divide right now is it's, there's not as many people seeing each other in person and it's very easy to just go and vent. So um, like, how can you, um, how do you uh, see ways of, of kind of getting across that physical distance gap during this time, not just to reach out to those who disagree with you, but also to those you care about and, uh, you know, to keep that sense of community going, even if you cannot meet in, in person. So I think for folks that are your friends where you're trying to uh, make sure you hang on to that friendship over a distance, the thing that always helps me most is having something I share with someone else. Uh, and so like my friends know this because that means I send them clippings all the time, basically. My parents do it to me. Like I get literal newspaper clippings in the mail for my dad. And then for me, it's sending links. But it means that when you find something you like, you share it with someone else out of love for them and for it. Uh, that sense of, you know, I found this good thing and now I want you to have it because I like you and I like it and I want to like it with you is a, is a good place to start. And when we think about how we often use social media, that's really not how it works. Often what we're sharing with our friends or whatever's ticked us off most, uh, whatever's kind of worst in the world. And that's a hard thing to build a friendship on. So just thinking like, what do I love most, find hope in, find beautiful? And have I sent that to the people I care about? And have I started conversations centered on that? Really making friendship a regular thing, you know, and right now that might mean having a standing monthly phone call or a weekly phone call um, so that you're not waiting for an occasion. You're talking to each other because you care for each other, which is which is nice, but kind of, uh, you know, naked in its own way, because if you're talking to your friends just when circumstances bring you together, you're making less of a, a real declaration of how much you care about them. When you say, I want to talk to you once a month, regardless of whether something's come up or there's a major life update, but simply because I like you, uh, you're being a lot more fearless and honest about what friendship is. When it comes back to kind of dealing with that frustration and that distance also, uh, the writer Liz Brunig had a great comment recently on one of the things that's so strange about social media, especially right now when social media is a lot of our connection with others, which is he said it gives people the strange experience of, you know, being like God in only one thing, which is knowing every bad thing that's happening in the world. And I think that's part of what makes us feel so exhausting and so impossible. You know, if, if my Twitter feed is full of 15 folks who are ticking me off in one day, I don't have time to, to make amends and like patch things up with 15 people per day. I have to throttle that somehow because um, that's what gives you that sense you're falling behind a little bit, right? And 
if I see just a lot of strangers where the only thing I know is that they make me angry, I'm never going to catch up in loving all of them individually. And so I do try and, you know, get things out of my feed if I'm not going to put the effort in to patch something up and then try and do active work where I think it will be useful. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that in myself that I, a couple of years ago, I started to uh, regularly share pieces of artwork on Facebook and uh, now on Twitter as well that I that I think are interesting and, and other people might enjoy. And I've found that it, it's opened up a lot more conversations than I would have thought. And it's also provided a lot more connections with people than I would have thought. Because uh, I was thinking first sort of selfishly, these are things I, I like, I'm just gonna put them up because <laughs> it's something I enjoy. But it kind of went beyond that. It's, it's actually something that when you share your own interests, it, enthusiasm is infectious just as anger can be infectious too. And I've started to try to, as you were kind of saying, kind of curate the way I use social media to try to follow the, the people who are trying to share their enthusiasms more than their their resentments or anger or, uh, you know, and sometimes people can be legitimately angry about things or legitimately want to to provide some sort of alternative or, or uh, remedy to, to injustices in the world, but it does tend to turn it sort of obsessive, I think, with many people. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, it looks like we're coming up fairly soon to, uh, on a half hour here. Um, if anyone else here on Facebook Live has a question for author Leila Bresco, her book again is Building the Benedict Option, and it is on sale this summer for $8.95. Uh, sale ends at the end of this month, so if you want to order it at that low price, it's going to be until August 31st. It feels weird to give a, a pitch as if I'm a salesman here, but you know I, I work on our catalogs, and so I can't help it. Um, <laughs> anyway, the um, one of the other questions that I know that uh, when this book was being read in our Ignatius Press offices, I heard a number of my coworkers talking about like, what are some small things that, that I could do to, to implement this? If I was, if this was something that I wanted to try to do more of, and I just, I, I don't know where to start because, you know, I, I, in San Francisco, it's, it's similar to New York, a lot of people living with roommates and, and not much room. Uh, so, if you were going to get tell somebody who is just a you know young person and they've got a little apartment somewhere, I know it, it's addressed in this book, but just a kind of a little quick recap of what you would tell them to do. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is just when you're with a Christian friend, don't part from them without praying together first is the first thing I would say. Uh, it's so strange how often it is that, you know, I found that by default, I'd get together with Christian friends, spend time together, love each other, and not actually pray together. We might even talk about church things without praying. So the first thing I would say, if you feel like you want to start, is don't part from another Christian without praying together. You know, if you want to do one more thing after that, you know, put up some Christian art you find moving in your house or in your tiny apartment or in your, it's technically a closet, but no one has busted the landlord on it yet, right? Um, both so that you're moved by beauty and so when you invite people into where you live, they can be moved by it or ask you. So that's the second small thing 
And now I'll give a medium thing, which is, you know, no matter how small your place is, and this is a little more predicated on it's safe to invite people over, but you could also do this in a park or somewhere else outside, you know, look at the calendar of saints and pick a saint coming up who you like, and then invite a friend or a couple friends to have dinner with you to celebrate the feast of that saint. You don't have to do anything clever, right? It doesn't have to actually be that different from a normal dinner. If you're fancy or go, it's the Feast of St. Maximilian Kolbe. We're going to have Polish food. I'm making it myself, right? You don't have to do any of those things. People just like an excuse. You say, it's the Feast of Maximilian Kolbe. We're ordering pizza. We're taking it outside in a park and eating, you know, 10 feet apart from each other. And then at the end, we're going to pray one of the prayers he wrote. Um, and you're together, but you've made your togetherness about God's saints and about, you know, striving towards that together. Oh, we have a question. Oh, man, the question is so long, it's covering my face. Let's see. <laughs> um, let's see. I'll read it aloud. I've seen thematic resonances between Wendell Berry's novels and some of the goals of the Benedict Option. My wife and I have a tradition of reading one of them on our anniversary, but we're going to run out someday. What other works of fiction do you find inspiring for showing good examples of the implementation of hospitality or of other community building practices? All right, so uh, I have a number of ideas. Uh, one of them is Kristen Lavren's daughter. So if you would like to read approximately 900 pages of a Scandinavian epic at a time when you know Christianity is finding a kind of uneasy home in a place still dominated by pagan practices, read Kristen Lavren's daughter. Um, and it's very moving because it's so long. And because it's so long, it has room to tell stories of small moral choices and how they ripple outwards. If you'd like to read a shorter book that's more of a Catholic beach read, perhaps, uh, perhaps you want to read The Awakening of Miss Prim, which my friends have described as what if the Benedict Option were a romantic comedy where a woman, you know, reluctant to be interested in communitarianism and caring for others um, comes to a small village full of, you know, very wacky personalities, falls in love with someone she argues theology with a bit. I love it. It's the kind of place where people think that one way of like solving the problem of workers' rights is to, you know, uh, get someone married to get them away from a bad employer. And, you know, that you know, they just need time for their family now. And the whole town will come together in a conspiracy to protect family life against the demands of employers who are unjust. It's a very wacky book. <laughs> um, I think the funny thing is that you know, you'll often find better political theory in something like The Awakening of Miss Prim, Kristen Lavren's Daughter, Jane Austen, novels that are small in scope, where the characters aren't carrying out a war, they're raising a family or, you know, cultivating a friendship and are making small choices that matter, just like all of us. I find that it's more often that people are willing to take this seriously in books with female protagonists, but I'd love to see more male protagonists have their small choices treated with the dignity that Jane Austen treats everyone's. Well, again, this is, we're talking about the Building the Benedict Option by Leah Labresco. And uh, thanks for joining us, Leah. And, uh, this is a great conversation. It's given me a lot to think about. And I hope other people think about it too and try to think about the small choices they can make to help bring about a closer, thicker communities as well as reaching out to those uh, we live nearby.
So thank you all. Um, and thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everyone who tuned in and asked questions. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.